Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are. And as ever, we have got a heck of a lot to cram in in our time together. Whole range of brilliant themes in your emails, all urgently relevant. And I'm going to be reflecting, if it's okay with all of you, on what I think are the myths of the New Labour 1997 election campaign, which are being unfairly applied to Keir Starmer now. In other words, you read a lot of why isn't Keir Starmer as clear and with the same sense of purpose as Tony Blair in 1997. Well, let's explore precisely the new Labour pitch in 1997. And I'll show, I think, why that is an unfair charge against Keir Starmer now. Then we turn to your brilliant questions. But before all of that, we've got some sad news. Last week, um, I asked those of you who are in our barometer focus groups uh, to get in touch with your latest thoughts about how you're going to vote. These are listeners or those connected to the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, who normally or often vote Conservative, but are having doubts, but have they got to a willingness to vote Labour, or are they still doubtful about that? Anyway, actually, I've got quite a few emails on that very theme later on. Um, I don't know why the parties pay for focus groups. We can be it. But the sad news is that one of the most legendary of our focus group was Denise Willier's mum. But I got this sad email uh, the other day from Denise saying, I'm writing with sad news of Maureen Condick, my mum and our one-woman focus group. She became suddenly and seriously ill on Friday evening and passed away peacefully on Saturday lunchtime with me by her side. So that is really sad. And I emailed Denise and said, well, we must at the very least dedicate this podcast to Maureen because although I haven't met Denise but I certainly haven't met Maureen but she has played such a part in our considerations during this dramatic period of British politics so we certainly dedicate this podcast to Maureen and uh, Denise I hope you're okay. Um, Denise adds she was bemused that she was our focus group not least because she swore she wasn't interested in politics. This wasn't entirely true in that she was a passionate armchair environmentalist who was very annoyed when Rishi Sunak watered down climate change policy, disgusted about sewage pollution and thought it shameful that working people were homeless and living in tents. An ardent royalist, she was thrilled that King Charles's Christmas message featured the environment so heavily and that William had taken up the mantle with the Earthshot Prize. While not entirely convinced about Labour, she nevertheless had decided to endorse our local parliamentary candidate, Tom Rutland, and has been winging her way around 10,000 lancing and something properties with her face and endorsement on Tom's leaflets. So uh, this was a, a barometer voter who swung all the way round to campaigning, whatever her doubts for the Labour candidate. And yeah, we got a 
quote which he says this was my mum uh, I voted Conservative all my life, but we cannot go on like this. We need investment in our local area, action taken to clean up and protect the environment, and someone who will just get things working again. And now, Denise said, her sister is now considering voting Labour, presumably having voted Tory like Denise's mum. Anyway, sad news, but she has been a contributor, even though she was somewhat taken aback to be, to our deliberations here in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. And so I thought right at the beginning we would reflect on that and dedicate our deliberations today to Maureen, who was clearly connected to politics in ways that she didn't quite realise. Many more of your emails to come. But before all of that, thought I'd look at, um, we're getting very much now into the pre-election campaign and there are many kind of assumptions and cliches that are bound to accompany the media coverage of the campaign. And one of them, I think, is a false view of 1997 and Labour's landslide victory then. It's really interesting how quite quickly mythologies arise about any period in British politics. And I've heard and read a lot about how Keir Starmer was no Tony Blair. Well, of course he's not. He's Keir Starmer. He's a different person, wholly different uh, political personality and background. But also that unlike Tony Blair and New Labour, there is a lack of clarity and sense of clear purpose and mission compared with the New Labour project. Well, let's look back to what uh, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and the New Labour project pitched to the electorate in 1997. And what we see are layers of imprecision and uncertainty as to what would happen if New Labour came into power. It's forgotten now, but one of the many reasons why there was a more developed sense of possible change in the build-up to 97 was the focus on constitutional reform that was far greater, actually, than there is now, heightened by Tony Blair's friendship with Paddy Ashdown, which led many to assume, and it might well have happened, that Lib Dems would be in the Blair cabinet. And it led to talk of a realignment of British politics. But the only reason why all that talk had a kind of feverish credibility was that uh, Labour were committed to holding a referendum on electoral reform. That was the pledge that bound the friendship of Ashdown and Blair, and was the pledge to lead excitedly, in some cases, in, in the views of some people, to speculation that there could be a realignment in British politics where uh, realignment on the centre-left with the Lib Dems working with Labour and possibly even Tories like Ken Clark as well. That's certainly the view that Peter Mandelson had at the time, as those of you who kindly subscribe to Patreon will know because I focused on an interview I did with Mandelson in January 1997 in the last Patreon. So that was one of the factors behind a kind of mood that everything was going to 
be different if Labour won. Yet what was Labour's pitch? First of all, by the way, it wasn't a new Labour pitch in origin, the referendum on electoral reform. Uh, John Smith had signed off a referendum on electoral reform while he was leader. So it was part of the legacy when John Smith died suddenly in the summer of 1994. But we also did not know where Tony Blair stood on the issue. He was going to have a referendum on electoral reform, and yet his own views were by no means clear. I mean, I was pretty sure that he was against a change in the voting system. And I think he once said that to me by mistake uh, in an interview for the New Statesman in the summer of 1996. I think he gave away his view on electoral reform highly uncharacteristically, but on the whole, he kept it vague. So although there was much excitement around this theme of constitutional reform, no one knew for sure where Tony Blair stood on a change to the voting system, and indeed on quite a few of the other constitutional reforms, including uh, the Scottish Parliament, which was also going to be the subject of a referendum. And that was an innovation of Tony Blair's, uh, to put it to a referendum. Now, we knew Blair would campaign in favour of that, but we didn't know what the outcome of a referendum would necessarily be. So in May 1997, when Labour made its pitch, no one knew what the voting system would be. No one knew for sure whether there would be a Scottish Parliament or what was then known as a Welsh Assembly, because they were to be put to a referendum. And the referendum was a device repeatedly deployed to avoid clarity. So the other big issue whirling around in the build-up to 1997 was the single currency and whether Britain would join in the first wave scheduled for 1999, two years after that election. And Tony Blair, as leader of the opposition, brilliantly mocked John Major for not being clear about where he stood on the single currency. And he did those famous things. Yeah, do you agree with your chancellor? Do you agree with your defence secretary? You know, I know where I stand. I'm with your chancellor. But that was not entirely clear. He didn't really know where he stood on a single currency. He was basically in the same position as John Major, who he mocked with such skill over the issue. Labour were proposing a referendum on entry to the single currency, and they would do so if um, they considered it to be in Britain's economic interest to join. They would then hold a referendum. And five tests were set, all rather vague, after the election as to what the economic criteria would be. So, in 1997, on this huge issue of whether Britain should join the single currency, whether this was part of the new Labour mission to seal Britain's historic destiny as being a key player in Europe, voters did not know, nor did the media, who were hailing this great sort of sense of purpose in the new Labour project. 
there was deliberate lack of clarity. Uh, then we come to another big theme, welfare. It's always a big theme because Tories claim that uh, Labour will be profligate on welfare. And Tony Blair used that famous word, modernise, to indicate a vague direction of travel. Uh, New Labour would modernise the welfare state. Um, what does that mean? And the truth is that neither Blair nor Brown were fully sure at the time of the 97 election what it would mean. They had both signed up to the idea that Frank Field would be a brilliant reforming welfare minister. Even though he wasn't the main minister, it was Harriet Harman who went into the relevant government department in 1997. Tony Blair made Frank Field a privy councillor to show his seniority in the field of welfare reform. There had been a minor flaw in this, that Tony Blair and indeed Gordon Brown had not read or considered properly what Frank Field was proposing. Because what Frank Field did propose when he became a welfare minister with uh, the seniority of being a privy councillor uh, cost a lot of money, in the short term at least, uh, would have involved a big increase in welfare spending. Uh, all chaos ensued, which led in the end to the departure of both Harriet Harman and Frank Field from the department. And it was a kind of wacky period where Frank Field was schooled as to what to say in interviews when he was still minister. But in the 1997 election, neither the voters, the media, or the new Labour leadership knew precisely what they would mean by welfare reform. So in three big issues at the time, there was imprecision. It went much wider. They were proposing referendums for the introduction of mayors, which would have had a kind of radical impact on public service delivery, possibly across large swathes of England. But on the whole, when referendums were whole, they were lost. So no one knew again in 1997 at the election precisely what would happen in this policy area. And of course, more generally, those famous five early pledges were also famously incremental. They pointed to a determination to improve public services, but did no more than that. They did not indicate the path towards how public services might be improved, nor would they in themselves revive the so-called public realm. And so when you hear interviewers say, ah, oh, yeah, or columnists write, yeah, compared with 97, there is no precision in the Keir Starmer project. In some ways, there is more. For example, there is, for wholly understandable reasons, no resort to the device of a referendum to avoid decision-making now. I think the UK has had its fill of referendums, um, which, by the way, is one of the problems, many problems, about introducing electoral reform in the first term or the next term of a Labour 
government. Uh, God, can you imagine a, another referendum? I know you all love electoral reform, but another referendum? So that device for evasiveness is not available. The five missions of Keir Starmer are more interesting than they seem, I think, in that um, although some of them are ends rather than means to an end, economic growth is an end. How do you get economic growth will be a key election issue for Labour. The media will be obsessed with means to ends, not the ends. But a focus in Whitehall on these missions and in number 10 could lead to more holistic government. It might not, where departments work together to get these five missions up and running. They are certainly bigger than the five pledges of 97. Now, that leads some to say, but we need a retail offer like the five early pledges. Well, maybe. But I don't think there is a need to copy every dot and corner of the 97 election campaign. And anyway, they're not. The big parallel, of course, is tax and spend. Gordon Brown and Tony Blair realised that, perhaps for different reasons in each of their cases, that there was no point pledging big public spending increases because when Labour do it, it's seen by the media and therefore many voters as a threat, not uh, a promise of a better quality of life. Um, and that is being pursued again now. Gordon Brown told Rachel Reeves when she first became Shadow Chancellor, cost everything. Don't say anything which you can't explain how you're going to pay for it. And they have also got these cosmetic tax rises to provide them with a protective shield of sorts when people say, well, how are you going to pay for the transformation of the NHS or uh, other things, uh, the non-DOM tax? Um, Gordon Brown discovered a popular tax rise, which was a one-off tax on the privatised utilities who had made soaring profits without doing very much. And these are the equivalents now. And the parallel will continue into government, assuming there is a Labour government, which is they will begin not wholly sure, I suspect, how they will find the money that will be required to lift public services out of the hellish state they are in at the moment. Um, of course, reform matters too, and that will be an interesting and contentious a theme, I suspect, in a Labour government. What is reform? What type of reform? It's been a theme of this podcast. Everyone's in favour of reform. There's no one who isn't. What kind of reform? The Blairite reforms or something different? And I think that will be an interesting one. But that will be too resolved in government. There is one other thing worth mentioning about 97 which was really impressive, which was the kind of behind-the-scenes work that went on for when they moved into government, uh, in two areas particularly, the economy and Northern Ireland. I remember a cabinet minister saying that, on the whole, they hit the ground reviewing another confession that they hadn't planned in advance that much about what would happen in government. But in Northern Ireland, they were deeply impressive from day one. Jonathan Powell had done a lot of work in opposition, uh, and they were ready to move. And it was like watching a sort of musical symphony unfold with Mo Molum on the whole wooing the nationalist, she then the Northern Ireland secretary, others trying to reassure the unionists. Anyway, they got the whole thing going again on day one. 
in a way that was very impressive. And of course, the other was the uh, independence of the Bank of England, which we've talked about in another context. The lack of confidence in government meant they have to give power away. Um, the Bank of England had independence set interest rates, but it was done very cleverly. So although power was seen to be given away in a big way that reassured markets and the right-wing media and the BBC and so on, it still gave Gordon Brown, Ed Balls and others a degree of influence in the way they framed the remit of the independent bank, the appointments to the Monetary Policy Committee, the appointment of a governor to the Bank of England. Anyway, it was a brilliant piece of work done in advance. Now, by definition... None of us outside uh, will know because they won't want to tell anyone in advance if they've got things like that ready to go. But that was a really impressive element of post-97. When you hear and read a lot of cliches in the coming months about, uh, oh, Labour have got to do this, they've got to explain how to fill a black hole, they're not as smart as 97 in terms of purpose and clarity, beware of the mythologies of the immediate past. Okay, that's a kind of thought from me. And now over to all of you. And if you would like to join in our never-ending discussion, it's Steve Rick. 14 at iCloud.com. And if you would like to delve deeper uh, in terms of what the mood was like in 1997, which is really interesting. I'd forgotten, for example, there was so much focus from new Labour leaders on constitutional reform and the scope for realignment, um, at least there was from the sort of Peter Mandelson wing. Uh, do sign up to uh, Patreon. And uh, there I will be looking at some interviews I did when I was political editor of The New Statesman in the build-up to the 97 election with Blair, Brown, Mandelson is this month's one. And then we will return Paddy Ashdown, by the way, David Blunkett, anyway, loads. And then we will return to the series on political rivalries, uh, which uh, just really interesting. Um, but for now, because we are in this pre-election campaign period, uh, those will be the bonus podcasts. So please do subscribe. It won't break the bank. Um, uh, actually, yeah, no, it's, it costs 50 grand an episode. No, no, no. Uh, it, it will be fine. Anyway, I hope you do. And now, as I say, over to all of you. And it's steverick14 at iCloud.com if you want to join in. And if you want to join our never-ending cooperative in uh, a fun way, please come along to King's Place live on March the 26th. I'm also at the legendary Rope Tackle in Shoreham in March. Haven't got the date on me, but if you go to the Rope Tackle website, you'll find it. Uh, and book and we will have some fun and shed light all of us collectively in the cooperative uh, there anyway now over to sue Ackroyd, who says it strikes me some tactical voting will be required otherwise votes will not achieve change but function more as a protest this is not applicable so much to seats likely to go back to labor or likely to vote conservative 
or SNP, etc., if we can assume that's what's most likely, but it will apply to marginals. Uh, will you be analysing the seats one by one during this year or in groups of similar seats? Has anyone considered the effect of boundary changes on the accepted marginals? In regard to the slogan, I suggest a single word, together. And Sue adds, it may be warm enough to listen to the podcast whilst gardening soon. Oh, the dream. Actually, as I record this, after the wilds of the storms, it's really mild where I am, Sue. You could be out in the garden listening to the podcast. I think the slogan is brilliant, together. I've been speaking a lot recently to Will Hutton, who's got a book out later this year, um, who's obsessed with the idea of the WE Society, the WE Society, um, instead of this fractured bunch of individuals battling it out on a daily basis, unsure whether they'll be able to battle it out successfully. Agencies to bring people together. And I think that would be very powerful, actually, a single word. So much of it is banal, and that's really good. I'm going to tell Labour about that idea. On tactical voting, I don't know whether I'm personally going to go through constituency by constituency, but I promise you this, this will be one of the themes in the coming months. Uh, whether it will happen, the importance of it, and there will be constituency by constituency analysis on websites and in papers and all kinds of places. Uh, and it will be a key factor in determining the outcome of the election. And of course, the, what terrifies the Tories is that it will happen, that Tories will vote Lib Dem in some places, Labour in others. Um, and Labour make gains against the SNP and suddenly we find ourselves in territory which suggests a big Labour majority. Uh, enjoy the gardening. Um, now on to Neil and, and Sandra Fairburn. I think it's Neil who wrote this. I love the podcast. As oh, thank you, uh, Neil. As committed members of the collective, we're looking forward to seeing you in Edinburgh in August. We start every day at the festival when we're there with your show, so can't wait. Oh, well, that's great. Yep, uh, be there the usual the last two weeks of the festival. Um, and, yeah, we'll be then on the edge of an election. So, yeah, look forward to seeing you there. Uh, do say hello at the end. Um, their suggested slogan for Labour... Labour works for you. Labour works as opposed to the Tories, which clearly don't work yet, and for you as opposed to a kind of Tory donors. That's another good one. These are really good. The verb work is a good one. For you is very engaging. Um, yeah, I think it's really good. Really good. That's two. I, I can't think these things up. When Christian Walmer asked me to do it the last live show, I couldn't think of one. But actually in the audience, they started shouting them out. And I've been getting them ever since. Uh, that's another really good one. Uh, shadow Cabinet members and people in Keir Starmer's office listen to this podcast. Keir Starmer does every now and again. I think he's a bit too busy to every week. But he has spoken to me about one or two things that have been in it in my time. Uh, anyway, that's another good one. I bet they're spending a fortune on some advertising agency to deliver this bloody slogan. Anyway, next to Howard Bryant, currently at home studio trying to do some real rock and roll. Oh, right. That's cool. Um, it's good to have a bit of 
musical class in the uh, cooperative and are looking to get to the March gig in King's Place. Well, that, that's great, Howard. See, see you there. Um, anyway, his question, Starmer wants to devolve a lot more power, we're told. To whom is this power to be devolved? An amateur part-time group of councillors or a bunch of unaccountable agencies and civil servants? Westminster is not the only element of our depressing political environment, remote from the people it's meant to serve. Not risk-free, but could a more French system of local mayors with real powers work better? Uh, yeah, I, really good. This is the problem with this idea of what Keir Starmer said a year ago, he hasn't really followed up on it, about an historic transfer of power. To whom? How is that power held to account? And yeah, I'm a massive fan of the mayors. I've said many times, a really good model, I think, of public service delivery is the London mayoral system, where public transport has been transformed, where you have a mayor accountable for transport, but he then brings in experts from around the world to deliver. Well, that's what happened at the beginning when we got people in from who had revived the New York uh, subway. Uh, thank you uh, very much, uh, Howard. Keep rocking in your studio. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Fraser Oates says in his press conference this week, Sunak repeatedly invoked the will of the people. You said that parties often fight elections on the previous election issues. Do you think he's laying the ground to call a snap election on the theme of immigration? Uh, us versus the elite, get Rwanda done. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, well, I think he will use, he will want to do all of that, Fraser, but not an immediate election. You can't call one when you're 27 points behind in the polls. Now, one shadow cabinet member was saying to me the other day, one of the reasons why there's no complacency on the Labour side is all the wild cards around. Uh, even if an anti-Tory mood is set, what about... Uh, the Tory media, what are they going to do? What about reform? And our reform correspondent, not a supporter, but just following them closely, white van man Andy Davis says, I note reform is up to 12% in the latest YouGov poll. And I can tell you, this poster got the thumbs up all round in my local when someone, not me, passed it around on the phone. And it's a reform advert from January 2024, uh, which is a merger of Sunak and Starmer. I haven't seen it before, uh, calling them the socialist twins. I mean, it's ridiculous. And on one side, the blue, I broke Britain, I'll bankrupt Britain on the red. Um, well, keep us informed, Andy, if that kind of 
nonsense is having a potent impact. We need to keep an eye out on reform. That is one of the wild cards of this election, especially if Farage comes back to lead them. Simon O'Neill, congratulations on a brilliant podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, oh, he's, he's got a slogan as well for Labour. I, we, we should be charging a fortune for these ideas. Uh, slogans haven't worked for Britain, Labour will. That's another good one, because you're playing on the fact that slogans are a farce. Um, yeah, that's really good. The, the current one with poor, poor old Rishi Sunak, I've got a plan, stick to the plan. Slight flaw in that messaging or slogan is no one knows what the plan is. Um Anyway, thank you. It's another good one. Uh, Laundry Joe, as I'm sure you're aware, so-called for new listeners, because Joe does his, listens to the podcast whilst doing his laundry, a very productive use of time. And uh, we met up again at uh, King's Place the other, the other week. As I'm sure you're aware, the Daily Mirror is shedding staff and has lost an editor. What impact would the demise or diminution of the Daily Mirror have on political discourse it's a real shame uh joe that the mirror editor felt the need to resign clearly over this issue of um cuts and job losses she was very effective and i'm told a really lovely person and that doesn't often go together uh, at the top of the media um yeah it I, I don't know how vulnerable it is i assume it will keep going um, although, of course, all print is still precarious in some cases anyway. If the mirror were to fall altogether and we're not anywhere near that stage, I suspect that would be a real big loss because, you know, the right-wing newspapers are still in the majority. Uh, they have a big influence on the BBC. Actually, the mirror, to be honest, doesn't have an influence on the BBC. It's the male and the Times and the Telegraph that frighten the BBC or uh, convince the BBC of the significance of one of their sort of priorities. Um, but yeah, it would be a very big loss if it were to go. Uh, Britain and its right-wing media, you can't do a history of Britain without looking at the impact of right-wing newspapers. So to lose one from the other side would obviously be big. Now, Jeff Strange, who is uh, another of our quite a few uh, uh, Dublin-based correspondents, at least Jeff was in Dublin, I don't know whether he still is, Um, will hell freeze over before the DUP in Northern Ireland accept power sharing with a nationalist Catholic first minister at the helm? Are not the supposed issues revolving around the Brexit protocol and Windsor framework just mere frosty tropes to use an excuse for vetoing a return to power sharing and it's a good question because um you know we uh, i know uh, uh canon paul abathnot uh, from dublin but who was brought up in northern ireland keeps a real close eye on this and he had hopes he's written to us about his hopes Uh, that an expediency would prevail in the DUP uh, to get that assembly up and running again soon. And I know he too is despairing and disappointed that this hasn't happened yet. And the longer this goes on, the more dangerous it becomes because, you know, it's it's obvious, a, a vacuum feeds on itself, so to speak, and it becomes more difficult the longer it goes on. Um, And now, Back to our theme of barometer v- 
voters very appropriately because we are dedicating the podcast to Denise Williams' mum. Stuart Grant is another major uh, barometer voters in the rock and roll politics cooperative. He is the one who presented me with uh, Brexit, no, Union Jack socks, what am I talking about, uh, to show our patriotic, frost-like, jingoistic machismo at a live show. Uh, and anyway, Stuart voted Tory at the last election. And where is he now? You asked last week about my voting intentions as one of the cooperative's barometer voters, and they are unchanged from my last message on November the 21st. By way of context, I think you already know my general election voting record. To paraphrase Lord Mandelson, I voted Tory, Tory, Blair, 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 Tory, 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 Tory. Anyway, his latest position is uh, unmoved since November. He won't be voting Conservative. Uh, he's not ready to fall into what he calls Labour's arms. He will vote for one of the smaller parties, and he hasn't decided which one. Keep us informed if that changes, uh, Stuart. Oh, Stuart says he's going to Edinburgh. Oh, well, I will question you at the live at the Edinburgh Festival, Stuart, about the latest thinking, because we will be weeks away by then from the general election. Uh, tickets for Edinburgh will go on sale quite soon. It's unbelievable, isn't it, how quickly it comes round. Um, anyway, over now to Neil Buckton. I had an interesting conversation with a friend who's worked in both the private and not-for-profit sectors. He said, this is in the context of last week's episode, where I was reflecting on the danger of this phrase, operational independence, where you give an agency of some sort uh, apparent independence from government ministers, the elected House of Commons, um, although they are theoretically accountable to ministers, but ministers move on every 10 minutes in our system. And uh, all sorts of things can go on, including the post office scandal. Anyway, Neil says, I had an interesting conversation with a friend who has worked in both the private and not-for-profit sectors. He said that whilst there is much to dislike about the current cutthroat world of commerce, you clearly know what's expected of you and what the consequences are of failing to deliver. He felt that the problem with the public sector is that the rules of the game are opaque. You never quite know what the consequences of underperformance will be. I'm afraid I've worked with people at all levels who haven't turned up, underperformed and or failed without any consequence whatsoever. Uh, I really enjoyed reading Turning Points over Christmas. Oh, thank you. And hope to get to King's Place in March. I will see you there, Neil, who adds, as a pro-market, pro-social justice, left-wing, progressive, one-nation Tory, my world is a lonely one. Will you join our barometer group, Neil? Um, as to the um, point, uh, yeah, I would add that this can apply to the private sector as well. Look at some of those privatised monopolies. Um, but I think there is a problem about lines of accountability in the uh, public sector or in areas where you, the, a government has devolved responsibilities either through privatisation or through these kind of hybrid arrangements where there is operational independence, in inverted commas, uh, real problems and these have to be addressed and that's the deeper issue of the post office and some of the other I think there'll be other things coming as well
uh, other examples. Uh, thank you very much. Dan, Mother, uh, continuing your theme regarding uh, bellwether voters. See, you know, Keir and all those of you, no need to spend money. It's all here. Slogans, floating voters. Anyway, Dan, I first voted Conservative as an 18-year-old in 1974. I continued serving many years in the Royal Navy. I continued to support the Tories, as I believe they were more sympathetic to the armed forces, with the exception of the 1990s when I transferred to the Lib Dems due to an impressive MP in Harrogate at the time. I then returned to the Tory fold until Brexit and 2019, when I simply couldn't vote for them under Johnson. Given their current very right-leaning positioning, I will not vote Conservative. However, I'm equally unimpressed with the alternatives. As it stands, I'm not yet committed to a Labour vote, but might reconsider the Lib Dems. Do you think the Lib Dems should have taken a closer EU relationship stance as a point of difference with the other parties? Well, thank you for your interesting positioning vis-a-vis -vis the next election. As to the question, I do, and I know why Ed Davey didn't, um, and that was because of the fact that he's targeting some seats in the southwest where Brexit was popular. But I can tell you, I've spent some time down in the southwest. They are all regretting it now. Well, not all, but a lot of them, uh, including farmers in the area and others. And uh, anyway, uh, I think they should have done because one of the things we, I mentioned Paddy Ashton earlier, you see, he positioned himself very clever vis-a-vis -vis New Labour. He was slightly to the left of them, which has to be said wasn't that difficult, but he was proposing an increase in income tax to pay for public service improvements, a 1p rise in the basic rate. Now, where he was lucky was some voters thought they literally meant 1p. But anyway, uh, now, uh, I think they, they should have made Europe a distinctive position. But it's difficult when you're targeting very different strands of the electorate. Uh, Ian Manners says, I would add to the list of public bodies, this is back to accountability, and this is very interesting, housing associations that took over from council housing. Remember the tragic case of the young boy who died in a flat that was rotten with mould. In the past, it would have been the local authority and councillors who would be held responsible for the housing. Now, as I know from my own experience of door knocking, the frustration you encounter regularly when you speak to housing association tenants who can't get anything done on their homes and have no idea what levers to pull or who to contact to get action. That's very interesting. Clearly, there were big problems in some areas with council housing and getting councils to deliver high levels of standards. Um, but so it is sometimes with some of the options. I, I remember... Uh, being a local government correspondent for the BBC uh, after the 1987 election. And Nicholas Ridley was Environment Secretary in Arch Arch Thatcherite. And he proclaimed a housing revolution. But the problem with Nicholas Ridley's housing revolution was that it involved the building of no new houses, certainly no new affordable houses. It was all about a transfer of ownership away from local government to housing associations, which in the end were accountable to him uh, via agencies like the Housing Corporation. 
And so it did, again, raise questions of accountability, but was an example of where this government should stand back culture began and has been in place ever since, hence the post office uh, scandal. Now, I've got some, uh, if you don't mind, I was going to read some more. We've been going on for long enough. I've got some great questions, including brilliant questions from uh, uh, some students who are listening to the show, which is a kind of great thrill for me. And I'm going to read them next week. So if you happen to be a student who wrote in and I haven't read them out today, I'm going to do it. And uh, yeah, there's some loads of others as well. Uh, great questions about, uh, uh, yeah, brilliant one from within the traditional uh, kind of One Nation Tory party. Um, some views from there, some other slogans. God, I could carry on for ages. Um, uh, great one from Paul Steinberg about NHS reforms. Yeah, it's Charles Ward from within the Tory party. Um I'm just kind of looking to have some brilliant uh, questions. Um, yeah, I, I, I could go on and on. But if you don't mind, I promise you, uh, I'm going to read them all uh, next week. Um, and there's going to be a case for some point too for a second one of the week and all that kind of stuff. So please uh, be patient if you don't mind. And I will uh, get to them. And thank you all so much for listening. And... Yeah, I mean, it's a crazy time. We need to get together again very, very soon. And if you could, in the meantime, subscribe, tell friends to subscribe, subscribe to Patreon if you can, uh, and leave a review, uh, but only these five-star numbers. That would be really great. And thanks so much. Take care. See you soon. Bye. Bye.